702. The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener. Live, online. The 702 app, DSTV Channel 856, 92.7 and 106 FM. Coming up on the show today, some workers resurface at the Gold One Mine. There's still a standoff with the unions. We'll go live to the scene. Randwater gives an update on supply in Johannesburg. We'll unpack the presidency's plan to fix Transnet, the Senzo Miwa trial, and we'll talk to a GBV activist who's climbing mountains for the cause. All of that over the next hour. 702. Let's walk the talk. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Midday Report on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Mandy Wiener. Great to be with you today. Some breaking news just dropping out of KZN. And if you've been following this uh, this saga around the Sama Awards, the KZN Tourism MEC, Siboniso uh, Duma, has just held a press conference cancelling the Samas. Uh, news 24 reporting... Uh, exclusively, that President Cyril Ramaphosa had advised the Economic Development and Tourism Affairs MEC against hosting the 20 million rand event. Do you think that's a good use of uh, the country's resources to spend 20 million rand on the Sama Awards? Well, they've been cancelled. Duma says they are polarising. That's the latest on that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Send me a WhatsApp voice note 072-7021702-072-567-1567. Let's start with the situation today at the Gold One Mine in Springs. Uh, Yesterday at this time we were reporting about the fact that over 500 miners were under ground and some were saying that it was a sit-in, some were saying it was a hostage situation. The the latest is that uh, some of those workers have now come to the surface. Around 200 of those miners seem to have come to the surface. Um, There were initially reports that uh, they had emerged uh, because there was an operation to free them and it's subsequently now come out that it seems as though they have actually escaped. Let's get the latest on that with Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter who is there for us. Nokokanya, good afternoon to you. Give us the, the latest. What's happening right now? Good afternoon, Mandy. So we're sitting with a waiting game yet again here at the mine where uh, a a number of workers who weren't part of uh, the hostage situation are outside the premises of the mine waiting for uh, the remaining miners underground to either emerge, uh, but also waiting for the leadership of AMCO to address them in a mass uh, meeting. Earlier, AMCO had uh, distributed a fresh uh, memorandum, uh, you know, calling for the workers here uh, to sign a petition uh, just lost that line unfortunately to Nokokanya I would like to hear Nokokanya are you with us let me try that again. No, we seem to have lost her. We're going to get her back again because I do want to hear what she has to say. So we're going to get her back. In the interim, though, I want to hear from the uh, Department of Mineral Resources because there are calls for the DMRE to step in here and get involved. Marco Sonke Butelezi is the DMRE spokesperson uh, who's been waiting to speak to us. Marco Sonke, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. There are calls for Gwede Mantashe, the minister, to step in and to get involved here. What is the position of the department. Thank you, Mandy, and good afternoon to you and your listeners. Look, Mandy, this is purely a labor relations uh, matter, which doesn't really fall under the preview of uh, DMRE. However, we are really concerned about the safety of the workers who are still underground 
because we know that it may not be safe for them uh, to be there for a lengthy period. And uh, that is what we are concerned about uh, because those are, uh, first is very important to us uh, as a DMRE. But uh, since this is a labor matter, uh, this uh, doesn't really fall under our jurisdiction as DMRE. So I appreciate that it is a labor issue at the moment. It really is an issue around Amku and NUM and who actually represents the, the, the mine workers. But at what point do we need some kind of political intervention? Uh, Marikana was also a labor issue and uh, we have learned lessons from that. So at what point does there need to be, um, uh, the minister need to, to intervene? Uh, we do know the police are standing by as well. So where where is that line? It's difficult to say so because, uh, look, labor issues, uh, um, they fall under the Department of uh, Labor uh, and Employment. And if anything, if it, uh, there has to be an intervention at a, a level of ministerial level, then uh, naturally the Department of Labor and Employment would be the one that should lead uh, that effort. So it's difficult to say uh, from this side at what point would be would the Department uh, of Mineral Resources or of Labour intervene uh, in this matter. Okay, so so uh, Makosonke, at this point, would you say that you're watching the situation, um, or is it does it just not relate to to you? We are we are definitely watching it. Uh, as I said, definitely watching it, particularly uh, when it comes to the safety of what mine workers who are still underground. Makusonke, thank you very much. Uh, Makusonke Butelezi is the spokesperson for the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, speaking to us there in response to the fact that there have been calls for Gwede Mantashe to step in. Well, we do have Nokokanya Mtambo back with us uh, on that uh, that line, which is now more stable. Nokokanya, uh, hopefully you can hear us. We can hear you. Um, give us the, the latest, as you were saying, about where we are right now. Good afternoon again, Mandy. So what I had been saying earlier was that it really is just a waiting game here at the mine as the uh, onlookers, which include uh, other mine workers who weren't part of the hostage drama, wait for those who are underground to continue emerging from the shaft. Uh, we, we haven't been allowed inside the mine, but we have a fair vantage point from where we are. We were able to see them come up from the shaft. Uh, and, and receiving medical uh, attention. But the AMCO leadership is uh, expecting to address a, a, a mass meeting outside here this afternoon. Uh, you know, we're expecting that to happen any moment now where they'll be giving workers an update about that petition, the, the fresh petition that they plan to submit to the mine uh, management, again, calling for, um, you know, for the termination of the pre-existing uh, closed shop agreement between the mine management as well as the National Union of Mine Workers. So we're just uh, waiting to see how it continues to unfold uh, and just waiting to, to hear from what it is that they plan to do. But Mandy, what we do understand is once they've garnered enough signatures on this fresh petition, they'll then hand it over to the mine management. We don't expect, though, that they'll be uh, coming out to address 
workers any time today, especially mm. because of the volatility of the situation here. But they've told me that um, if they if they don't manage to get uh, mine management to come out to receive the petition, then they'll send it through by email and they'll take it from there. Okay. If there's no response, then they'll go back to the court for uh, for intervention. Lokokanya, on this issue of volatility, um, my understanding is that the police are, are, are standing by. How involved are they in the situation? I'm sure they want to be extremely cautious, but at what point do they get involved to bring those mine workers up to the surface? So, I mean, in terms of uh, say, uh, police intervention, at least, they certainly are visible on the site within the premises. Yesterday, uh, they, they were patrolling, not so much today on the outer perimeter of the mine, but within the mine, they still certainly are quite visible, and this includes private security as well. They are playing it as safe as possible. Uh, again, the number, of, uh, the number of people that are underground requires them to treat the situation with absolute delicacy. There was initially a tactical plan that was hatched for uh, police to pull the miners out, uh, but we understand they might have held off on that amid ongoing negotiations with management as well, between the, with, between the unions and mine management as well. So they certainly are keeping uh, you know, a visible mm-hmm. presence on the ground and just waiting and, and watching it unfold. We also understand, Mandy, that they were processing or interrogating some of the first uh, that first batch of miners that yeah. we saw come up, interrogating them about the circumstances of what led to either it being a hostage situation or a sit-in, as we're hearing with those differing versions from uh, the mm. unions. But we don't know where those interrogations stand. But okay. also the uh, AMCO has already hit out at just the number and the extent that the state has gone to bring out yeah. and deploy those police on site. Nokukanya, thank you very much. Uh, Nokukanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, who is at the mine for us. Well, let's get the view of NUM and AMKU now. Livuwani Mamburu is the NUM spokesperson who joins us. Uh, Livuwani, good afternoon to you. We do have some of the mine workers that have come up to the surface now. How concerned are you about your members who remain underground? You say it is a hostage situation. Would you like to see the police going in and bringing these mine workers up to the surface? Uh, uh, good, uh, good afternoon, Mandy, and the listeners of Radio 712. We can confirm that there are 112 uh, uh, members who had uh, forced their way uh, back to the surface. So they had to take risk to to say that kill us if you want to kill us. Uh, we are going back to the surface. And uh, that is what happened. All these 112 uh, members who came back, they, they fought their way out with those who are holding them uh, at hostage. That is the situation as we speak. And they are saying those who are holding uh, uh, our members hostage are extremely, they are heavily armed with uh, pangas and, and knives. So that is the situation that is happening now. More than 400 uh, members are still being uh, held hostage as we speak. So, so would you like to see the police going in there or is that just going to, to inflame the situation? Now, just to inform you, Mandy, uh, yesterday we had a meeting with the mine management where they informed us at 10 past 6 police uh, at, at night will take complete control of the hostage situation. So that is what we have been informed. As we speak now, we are in a meeting with the mine management. They are telling us that they are no longer going to get involved because police told them that they are in complete control of the 
of the of the OSIS situation. So police are the ones who are in control. Okay. So my, my, yes, that's what is happening, Amanda. Okay. And, and uh, do you, what is the way out over here? Would you be comfortable with Amku being recognised as a representative officially of uh, the the mine workers, or how do you see this playing out now? No, Amanda. There are two processes of the law. Amku, Amku, they've applied for Section Twenty One of the Organisational Rights. They even took the matter to to the Labour Court um, for the Labour Court to rule on it. So this is judgment uh, expected to to, to, be, to be rolled on this matter around the 26th of uh, uh, or 26th or 24th of January next year. Okay, Libuani, thank you very much. Libuani Mamburu is the NUM spokesperson, giving us the view there of uh, the National Union of Mine Workers. Jeff Mbachlele is the AMCU General Secretary. So let's speak to him now. Jeff, good afternoon to you. Thank you for, for your time. Uh, from the AMCU side, uh, what is your view on the fact that we do now have about 100 uh, mine workers that have emerged? We're, underst- we're understanding, according to reports, they escaped from the AMCU members who are holding them hostage. You've been insisting all along this is not a hostage situation so what is your understanding of the latest developments thank you very much katie i think we need to 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 correct the situation or the facts presented by red mambuzu there it's just misinforming the public nobody escaped these members again at their own volition they decided to, to leave. And there are still other members who are underground. Now, those that are underground, he comes short of telling you the truth that they are saying they want to see AMCO leadership, they want to see NUM leadership, they also want to meet with management. Right? So these are technically NUM members. So, so, so Jeff, I understand your your argument and and that's why we're giving you an opportunity to correct this. But I I struggle to to appreciate how mine workers would go and spend three, almost four days underground uh, without any uh, water or food or anything just to to ensure that they make their point around being recognized. Um, You know, what what is the motivation there? Because as Amku, you're not supporting this officially. No, we, we, we are not supporting anybody to sit underground, Katie. Uh, uh, our, our plight uh, as AMCO is to see all those people out. And we will never use dubious uh, tactics to, to, to get members involved. We know how to follow the law to the latter in terms of the Labor Relations Act. So these members took a conscious decision that we are not going to go out until the union that want, they want to put there is recognized. And who is saying that? Let's start there. Who is saying that? AMCO did not have members. It's the members of NUM that are now saying enough is enough with NUM. We want to join this new union. That is the point. Then who forces who? If you look at that logically, mm. it would be NUM members because NUM still claims that is the only recognized union in the workplace, which we agree with that. Okay. Yes. Jeff, how concerned are you at the moment about the fact that the police are now in control of this uh, situation and that uh, it, it, it could be volatile um, and that lives could be placed at risk here? 
the the truth one day will it's, it's Mandy just uh, sorry I didn't oh, correct you earlier but I'm Mandy, going to correct you okay. now thank you Mandy the truth will surface Mandy uh, we are very much concerned we have uh, requested to meet with uh, management on Monday we met with management we were so close Mandy to come with an agreement of getting those people out and then it was getting late and then NUM was becoming agitated, they just moved into the, 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 the room where we were, into the boardroom where we were with management. And then we said, okay, management, can we meet the following day in the morning? Management agreed that we will meet at 8 o'clock. When we were there yesterday, we were kept outside the whole day. NUM has uh, uh, ordered it, so to call it COPs, that is their bodyguard, the 20 barricading the whole office of management. Right. We couldn't be allowed to go there. So we are very much concerned about the situation. Okay. We have... Yes? I, I'm just worried about time, so I'm just okay. wrapping you okay. up, if, if that's okay. But I think we've we've got the point from you, Jeff. I understand the position of, of AMCO, and thank you for your time, Jeff Mpachrele, the AMCO General Secretary, speaking to us there. So there you have various views from our reporter uh, to the Department of Mineral and uh, Mineral Resources and Energy that says this is a labour matter. And then hearing from NUM and AMCO as well. Uh, Clement Magnatella earlier spoke to one of the mine workers that came up to the surface, and that's, uh, that mine worker told him that uh, they've just come out of the mine. They were not held hostage. We staged a sit-in. No one is injured. We had food. Um, we don't want NUM anymore. So that's the, the viewpoint from at least one of the mine workers. Uh, and then, of course, you've got a situation now where the police are in charge of the situation. And we have learned our lesson in this country about what happens in these kinds of standoffs. We've all, um, I think, still carry the, the, uh, the scars from Marikana. So I think we need to treat this very, very carefully and understand how it even got to this point. And now it's back to Mandy Wiener on the Midday Report. This is 702. Let's walk the talk. I do love your sense of humor, Sabelo, on the WhatsApp line says, from Mandy to Wendy to Katie, I'm calling you Nonchlantla. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Isabella. You can call me whatever you like. Um, I have been called all kinds of things today. I've been called Katie. It's okay. I'll go with that. It comes with a, a great degree of respect. Um, but uh, I'm used to the Wendy. So so whatever you like, you, you feel free to call me whatever works for you. Let's get an update now on the Senzo Miyua trial with Humoto Modise, EWN reporter. We're still discussing in that courtroom whether or not a pointing out was indeed a pointing out and whether uh, there was a confession by one of the accused, Humoto Modise, in court for us. Khamoso, good afternoon to you. Bring us up to speed with what's been happening there. Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, we have just heard testimony from the Lieutenant Colonel Hadeb, who's actually completed his time on the stand. He's been testifying around that pointing out exercise that he had done with the first accused, Mugal Kulela Sia. And I think one of the main things worth noting today is that firstly, we've heard about how Ekurulegi Metro Police representatives were present from the time when they were at the cells and at the Alberton Police Station and at the pointing out, um, as well as moving back to the Alberton Police Station. This is important, Mandy, because according to the defense, they're arguing that Sibia um, had been assaulted, was coerced and threatened by police to confess. And it seems from the line in the cross-examination, they're trying to point out, the defense is trying to point out that the very people that were, um, you know, that had assaulted him were present as he was doing the pointing out, almost posing a threat or threatening him to say the right things. 
So that's the first part. But we've also heard um, from Hakebe as he's been uh, detailing while on the stand, he's given very clear details about the process. So he followed all things, but he's conceded that the, proce- the processes at the police station may have been flouted at the point when police refused to sign out for Sevilla. So he says what happened was when he arrived at the Alberton police station, none of the officers that were present wanted to sign Sevilla out out of fear that he may escape. And so he took it upon himself to sign the booklet himself. But he's conceded today that that isn't the process. He says usually it is the police officers that are in charge at the police station that do the signing out. But because he wanted to do what he was there for, which was the pointing out, he then took it upon himself to sign out. So those are the main things that came out from Hadebe's cross-examination um, by Advocate Sandy Lemshololo. He's completed his time on the stand and he stands by his version, Mandy, that he explained the rights to Sabia and Sabia still wanted to point out the crime scene um, in June of 2020. So are we closer to reaching a conclusion to this trial within a trial or do you expect this to still drag on for a while? Well, it's moving, Mandy. I can tell you that we've been having witnesses. Um, you know, uh, it seems the defense isn't trying to keep witnesses on the stand unnecessarily. They ask questions where necessary. We've heard several um, times where the defense decides they don't have any questions for a witness. I can tell you now that the witness that was uh, uh, on the stand right now was Sergeant uh, from the Jimson Police Station who actually took the photographs of the of the scene as well as the, uh, the photographs of Sibia uh, showing that he hadn't been assaulted, at least in his upper body. He didn't even take about 20 minutes on the stand. He came, he told um, the court the pictures that he took or the fact that he was called to take pictures. And the cross-examination was very, very brief. So it seems we are moving here and there is progress being made. We've got another lieutenant colonel currently on the witness stand. And he's also going to be testifying around the confession statement made by Bongani Tanzi. So I can assure you that there is some movement here in the Pretoria High Court. Khumoto, thank you. Khumoto Modise, EWN reporter, giving us an update there on the Senzo Miwa trial. 702, the Midday Report, Monday to Friday. 12 to 1 p.m. 12.37 on the Midday Report. Uh, Albakwe says, Mandy, your show is so funny today. Absolutely love it. You guys made my day. Uh, thanks, Albakwe. Now, I hope I pronounced your name correctly because that's what we're laughing about is the fact that nobody can pronounce my name correctly. So I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that I try and pronounce everybody else's name correctly. Well, Alpha Ramoshwana, we'll start with you because you've been listening to uh, the Rand Water giving a briefing today. The Rand Water Chief Executive Officer, Sipo Mosai, giving an update today on the state of the Bulk, bulk water supply in its area of operations. Alpha, what has he been saying? What's the state of the water supply? Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, rainwater today is basically saying that, you know, uh, they are pumping water as expected. Their, their systems are indeed healthy. And of course, this comes as, you know, all most of the municipalities in Gauteng that rainwater uh, supplies water to, uh, you know, facing distribution and supply challenges. I mean, the city of Swan has recently announced that, you know, some reservoirs are actually low. And we do know that in the city of Johannesburg, residents don't have water, while some are getting a reduced uh, pressure of water. So the bulk water supply is saying that its systems essentially are healthy and it's defending itself because there have been some municipalities that are saying that they are not getting enough water from rainwater. And the water supplier, the bulk water supplier is saying that is not true. It's actually pumping 
uh, water at maximum capacity. It's giving uh, the municipalities more than they should. And it's saying that all it needs to improve at the moment is its storage systems uh, for in case of an emergency, you know, uh, so that they are able to supply water to municipalities in case of an emergency. But let's take uh, a listen to uh, the COO of Rainwater, Matsumana Metro. That water, we assume that it's used. But we also know that there is a lot of wastage in the water that we actually supplying to the municipalities. And that wastage is part of the consumption. So when we talk about reducing consumption, um, we are also talking about reducing that wastage because that wastage is part of the consumption. And it has to be understood in that context because when we talk about consumption, we do not remember, we don't have eyes in the reticulation of municipalities. Only the customers have eyes in that space. Only they can actually say, where is that wastage and what can they do about it? And wastage is one of those issues that uh, comes up repeatedly from listeners saying, well, why, why do they ask us to use less water if there is so much wastage? Uh, if, you, if you look at an area that's been particularly badly affected, we know it is the area of uh, Linmeyer, where the South Hills Reservoir has had massive problems. Uh, some people in that community have spent around 55 days without water. Uh, you've been having a look at that as well, Alpha. Uh, what's the situation there? Yeah, you know, Mandy, the residents of Linmeyer have, um, had a very terrible and tough um, last two months. They've just uh, had their water restored. They lived for about 55 days without water at all. And, uh, you know, according to our engagements with them, they've been telling us that there's been poor communication from the municipality to the residents when it comes to, you know, those 55 days when they didn't have water. In fact, we visited the community uh, and, you know, one resident opened their taps and only air was gushing out of the tap. However, the water meter, which is which was right outside the yard, was just turning at an accelerated rate. And he also showed us um, his water bill, showing that he was paying 6,800 rand on a month where, during a month where he didn't even have water at all. So that, 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 that's a big problem. The fact that residents in Linmere had no water for about two months, yet they continue to pay exorbitant water bills. Uh, the water has been restored now and, you know, they've been surviving on uh, off of water tanks for the whole two months that they didn't have water. And they are saying that they didn't trust the water quality at that time, that water was not drinkable. So they've had to resort to drinking water. But let's take a listen to what one of the residents uh, has told Eyewitness News. I think it's atrocious. Um, I think we're going to probably get to the question of how much we're being charged for water, but how can we use water if we have no water in our taps? In fact, when we had no water for such a long time, I'd look at my tap and it would be an ornament on the wall. Uh, The problem, I think, lies in all the leaks that we have around the areas, and that's where the consumption lies, not from the residents ourselves. And we pay for that. That is a service that we pay for. Um, So, quite frankly, that shouldn't be a problem that lies on us. It should be our infrastructure and our municipality that needs to worry about that. Do they attend to the leaks leaks with with urgency or speed? No, not with urgency. Um, And they don't, they'll try and put a plaster on a massive wound that needs stitches. Uh, And the other thing that we've spoken about as residents this morning is they might fix a leak, but then they'll leave all the rubble around the leak. They'll leave the community members' pavements completely destroyed. 
Um, so they don't really fix the problem. They maybe put a plaster on the problem, they don't fix it. And when it comes to the water tankers, how often did they dispatch them here? Water tankers have been good by God's grace and we're really thankful that the water tankers have been coming in quite regularly. Um, however, again, it's not a long-term solution. You can't be carrying 20, 30 liters of water every day in a bucket on a constant basis and elderly people can't do that. So water tankers are great that it gives us water, but it's not a sustainable solution. It's a one or two day solution, not a long-term solution. You mentioned something earlier on, um, recalling that... My thanks to Alpha Ramashwana for sending us through that audio and uh, also just giving us a perspective of what uh, people in Linmaya have been experiencing, but then also uh, what the Rand Water CEO and COO have been saying about the state of the bulk water supply in the city of Joburg. 702. 702. Mandy Wiener. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. From the situation with water to concerns around what some are calling the collapsing logistics sector, there's a new plan that is coming from the presidency to look at the logistics sector and Transnet specifically. That pre- that plan would uh, weaken Transnet's monopoly and promote competition by increasing the private sector's participation in the running of the rail network. Uh, it sees uh, quite a bit of involvement from the private sector in terms of recovering the rail network and Transnet specifically. Rudy Dix is the head of the project management office in the presidency. Rudy, thank you so much for your time and for coming to speak to us uh, today about this. Uh, Tell us about uh, this plan. It's extensive. It's a 124-page roadmap for the freight logistics system. Uh, Tell us uh, how it came to be and and what it includes. Thanks, uh, Mandy. I hope you can hear me quite clearly. Perfectly. Thank you. Wonderful, and thanks to you and the and the listeners. So perhaps just a quick correction: it's the freight logistics roadmap. The logistics sector is quite broad and quite huge. Um, we're specifically looking at freight logistics, and the the major focus is, of course, on turning around, um, as the roadmap indicates, turning around operational performance in the short run, both within the rail and in the port system. Um, and of course, um, because of the inefficiency there, there's been also unintended consequences where a lot of the bulk freight, for example, that should be on rail is on road. So, um, you know, that also has to be dealt with. And in the long run, really, the freight logistics uh, roadmap is about some of the structural reform, and you've pointed that out. And, and that's really, uh, you know, what it is about. And, and the structural reform is about how we ensure there's competition on the road, uh, on the on the, on the rail and port system, how we, uh, for example, ensure that we set up mechanisms to allow for competition and for private sector participation, um, um, ensuring that we uh, strengthen and set up the relevant entities that are state-owned, that would control and continue to own the infrastructure, both in ports and rail, but also some of the more uh, important and urgent areas, you know, um, you know, lack of investment over the last 15 years and the capex required for rejuvenating the, ra- the rails and the ports, um, issues around regulation, for example, and the regulatory framework that needs to be set up in particular, the, the uh, economic transport regulator. So in essence, this has been a, a collaborative process um, driven by Operation Wooden Glela in the Presidency and National Treasury, together with uh, the Shelby Department, which is DPE, uh, Department of Public Enterprises, and the Policy Department, which is the Department of Transport, um, and in consultation with, of course, the entity which is Transit. And that fundamentally mm-hmm. is the process that we've, that we've taken um, along. Now, it's not a new 
policy. Let me just let me just say that, man. Because it does draw it on, on many previous policies that you yes. have made public in, in the past. Yes, so it draws on a whole set of legislative and policy documents. And what the roadmap is, is really cascading those policy and legislative documents into a workable plan. You know, something that is tangible, that is able to address fundamentally the challenge that we face. And so, yes, 120 pages, a shorter 15-page executive summary that you can read through, but I think it's been quite an important, (laughs) it's been quite an important process and that, of course, leads us now through a consultation process Mm. internally and externally and will lead us to it uh, being adopted by cabinet fairly shortly. We have seen the private sector uh, stepping up through B4SA. Uh, We know that there are three separate work streams that various CEOs are working with Operation Wool and Lela in the presidency and and, and with government uh, in general. Um, But I, I imagine that there is some concern from some sectors that this would mean a move to privatize uh, South Africa's logistics assets and just privatize government services. Is is that what this is here? No, not at all. And I would just, I just really want to dismiss that because I, I think the, the quarters where this kind of comments are coming from, are, uh, it's really just unfortunate, right? And, and for me, I think what we have to accept that, you know, South Africa is a mixed economy. And so, so if we take it from, the policy document of the ruling party, um, and and it, of course it, it provides a mandate to government to government on that basis. We have to work with the private sector. This is not about privatisation, but it's certainly about creating competition and policy decisions that we've taken many years ago and actually finally implementing it. So the point that I raised earlier, and you you, you agree with us that that you know this is not new stuff. This is simply implementing what we've agreed to. So it's not privatisation. We are going to hold on to the infrastructure. That's ours. Similarly, the same thing we said for, if I may draw, uh, you know, anecdotally, sorry, um, um, uh, uh, analogous, uh, um, you know, comparison to the transmission network. You know, when we talk about private sector participation, the, the grid of the transmission network remains ours. And equally in the same, the rail infrastructure, the entire rail infrastructure, the port infrastructure remains government. And that's, that's the importance. What policy has provided over the last 20 years is for us to create a, to create a competitive framework at an operational level where we, we need to set into motion uh, and create a competitive environment, an open access environment, non-discriminatory access to the rail network and to the, uh, into the port uh, system. And that's really what it is. Our partnership with the private sector is an important partnership. We should have, of course, um, you know, some time back have already enforced that partnership. And this is about business offering support um, where it's required business providing a technical expertise, um, engaging around areas where we can get confidence going, making sure that we have a, you know, a coherent program that we're all on the same page and that we're able to ensure that South Africa moves forward mm. and we get to that kind of growth that we all talk about. We get to that employment levels and addressing inequality and poverty, which is all uh, going to be important. So uh, Ru- it's quite unfortunate mm. that these comments come through and, and the bigger picture is not seen. Really, uh, it sounds amazing in, in theory, right? But yesterday, yeah. for example, um, Daily Maverick reporting that Transnet Freight Rail uh, has announced that it cancelled a conditional contract with Traxty and Shultum, uh, which uh, was the, the bid to operate the Kronstadt to East London Railway Line, which yeah. uh, they're arguing demonstrates that this cooperation with the, the private sector is 
not working as well as it as it should, that it has bombed further is the correct verbatim quote there. So is this a, a great idea in theory, but in practice we're not seeing that collaboration with the private sector? Well, I mean, let's use that one for example, right? So that was basically an RFP that Transnet had issued for third-party access, right, for 16 slots, for 16 slots, right? And um, there were a number of concerns raised by the industry, for example, around the way the RFP was written up. And let, let me reflect on some of them. For example, the term of the, of the third-party access was two years, and people were expected to make huge capital investments, so they were never going to get the return. There were a number of other issues related, for, ex- for example, to uh, bargaining council extensions and agreements. There were issues raised, uh, related to access to the to, to the lines and stuff like that. So, so in essence, when we saw the submissions from business, they had raised concerns about it not being attractive enough to get private sector investment. At that point in time, there were 19 interested parties, 19, Mandy, right? And eventually when the final RFP went out, only two parties had submitted bids. The one was disqualified and Patchen was the only one that stayed. So it is important that if we are trying to lock in the private sector, it's important to listen and to look at how best we incentivize the system that allows them to be able to invest. And I think that's a lesson for us to learn. But it's also a lesson about not being a player and a referee at the same time. And that's um, yep. you know, important for us, particularly if you, if you play and you have the infrastructure and you operate. So that's quite important. So one of the important right. interventions in the roadmap is setting up an independent infrastructure manager, eventually uh, many years mm. down the line, but creating a division. So it's important to set the rules quite fairly if you're, uh, if you're having yeah. uh, to play in, uh, as a player and a referee. And generally speaking, you want Transnet to be a player as it is with everybody else and for us to own the infrastructure and to have a fair open access system that is there. And that's really what has happened. Rudy, thank you so much. I'm sorry to press you for for time, but uh, we are out of it. It's a rare commodity in in this game. Uh, Rudy Dix is the head of the project management office in the presidency, speaking to us there about this plan that has come out of Operation Volantlela and the plan is to, to fix the rail network in this country and get Transnet working with the private sector. What's up, Mandy? On 072-702-1702. Hi, Mandy. My name is also Mandy, and my absolute pet hate is when people call me Mands when they don't don't know me. Um, I haven't been called uh, Katie, but I have been called Wendy, and maybe lots of other things too. Great show. Thanks. Hi, Mandy. On the name story, I think the Wendy comes from Wendy Nola from another show. I think maybe they think you sound the same. Anyway, that's my take on it. Bye. Dawn from Lone Hill. This is so true, right? Because I get called the consumer ninja all the time and people send me Wendy's emails and we have a joke because I send her stuff, the emails that I get, and then she sends me the emails that, that she gets that are for me. So I think that's very, very accurate. I think that may be the, um, the, the origin of this confusion around getting my name right. 702. 702. Mandy Weiner. Weekdays, 12 to 1 p.m. So to end off uh, the show today, I want to tell you about uh, the act.
activist, Angela Jung, and uh, what she's been doing to raise awareness around gender-based violence. Uh, she's been climbing mountains, uh, and she's uh, just tackled the world's eighth highest peak. She summited Mount Manaslu in the Himalayas to raise awareness of gender-based violence in South Africa. So uh, we are joined today by Angela Jung, who's the founder of the Impilo Collection Foundation, entrepreneur and social activist as well. Angela, good afternoon to you. Um, why are you climbing mountains of all things to, to raise awareness around GBV? Thanks, Mandy, for having me. Um, 2017, actually the first time I met my biological mother, after 30 years of constantly looking for her, I think because of my difficult childhood that I could relate some of the girls' experiences. So in 2018, 2019, I was invited by Chaco Mandela to climb Kilimanjaro twice for caring for girls, for girls they cannot afford sanitary pad and missing school for 50 days a year. And that's how I started climbing. And I also felt like that was the right timing for me to give. You can't give if you don't have. Mm, absolutely. Um, mm. And and you also uh, are involved with um, the uh, uh, collecting bras for your non-profit, yes. the Impilo Collection Foundation. Tell us about that. Yes. So 2020, when the COVID started and I see people really suffering, then we started a food drive and I call out on social media, my friends and family, and we managed to collect 10 tons of food. And I said to myself, who am I to give out the food? So that's how I motivate myself to start this foundation called Imperial Collection Foundation. And we gave up all the food to the orphanage, the OH home and GBV shelters. And then later on, we received one tons of sanitary pad and we gave out to the informal settlements with HIV positive and disabled children. And one day there was the girl that actually come up to me and asked me, Angela, Next time when you come, can you please bring us some bras? And she explained to me, perpetrator thought there was an invitation of sexual attention. That's how GBV started in the informal settlement area. And then we did a research and realized there was 2,700 women die from gender-based violence that year. And then sure. we started this campaign empower her and start collecting bras for 2,700 bras. But we actually came back with 6,200 bras and we displayed that at the Constitution the Hill by the Women's Show. It feels like there were 6,200 women standing in front of us and telling us, stop this. So that's and so powerful. Gave, mm. It is, it was. And we gave out the memorandum, we handed the memorandum to the Department of Public Safety and all our social warriors came from all walks of life. They closed the business, they they mm. take off work, and they come and wash and pack and label all this bras for us. And we gave out to 3,100 women in, in South Africa. Amazing. And yeah, that was the reason that I climbed Island Peak last year for 6,200 meters to echo what we've been doing for Empower Home. 6,200 bras that we collected. Well, Angela, thank you so much for speaking about that uh, today. Angela Jung, the founder of the Impilo Collection Foundation, speaking to us there about the work that she does to raise awareness around gender-based violence. The Midday Report.
So I think the story to keep watching this afternoon is going to be that situation at Gold One's Moda East Mine. Uh, there are still a good 300 or so mine workers underground uh, at the moment, whether it's a hostage situation or a sit-in. We understand the police are now in charge of that situation. So it is very concerning. It is volatile at the moment. Uh, hopefully that gets resolved soon and by the time we come on air tomorrow at least that it is resolved. So that's uh, that's something that we're going to be watching closely on EWN. Thank you so much. Uh,